Folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is January 26, 2017. This is episode 1939 of the Survival Podcast, and it is a Thursday. That means I'm taking your calls today. Those calls, you make them to 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. Ask your question or make your point immediately when you call into the Think Line. It's on a recording. But say, Jack, I am calling from blah, blah, blah. My question is, or my point is, don't deviate from that formula. It will make it a lot more likely that you'll get on the air. Then give me all the details you want after you ask your question or make your point. I promise you it'll go easier and faster that way. And it's more important now than ever, I think, for you to do that. I don't know what happened uh, going into this new year, but the call volume was kind of light. Uh, so I actually skipped a couple call-in shows. Uh, but the, 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 the volume is not just up. It's probably greater than it's ever been in, in eight and a half years of doing the show. So I'm getting a lot more calls right now. That means less calls are getting on the air. And if you follow the formula, call from a quiet area, make your point immediately, give me your details after it, you are much more likely to not get deleted after I've listened to the call for 30 minutes or 30 seconds and still don't know what you're calling about. All right, so with that in mind, which calls did I select today? What are we going to talk about? We're going to talk about plant guilds, and specifically I'm going to talk about why you shouldn't over overthink plant guilds. If you don't know what a plant guild is, don't worry, you'll find out today. Uh, GMO apples, people are freaking out. The sky is falling, the GMO apple is going to come eat us all. It's not as big a deal yet anyway as I think some people have been led to believe by yellow journalism. I'll tell you about that. Vines, are they a threat to your trees? I'll tell you why in most instances the answer is no. Um, a call from Jake in Tennessee about technology being the solution to bullying, and he outlines an app, an anti-bullying app. The reality is the app he's describing, it exists. I'll tell you about it. It's just not called a bullying app, and it's not really targeted that way. But could it work? It's an interesting idea. A uh, question about Irapans, which I use here on my trees, and uh, how I feel about them after a couple years. A uh, question on cutting firewood without a chainsaw. Question on resources for new anarchists that aren't full of a bunch of anarcho-communists that aren't actually anarchists and non-aggression principle and some other stuff. That's some great resources for people that want to learn more about that. Starting new trees from seed and casting bullets from a health and safety perspective. All of that today, as soon as we get through our uh, housekeeping section with that in mind, let's go ahead and take care of our two sponsors of the day. You know, guys, I've been telling you about how Safe Castle Royal has everything for your prepping needs for over seven years now. Everything's a big word, but in this case, it's true. Of course, they have long-term storage food, water purification equipment, shelters, solar and wind components, and more. But hey, did you know they even have an amazing fold-down, bug-out bicycle? Yeah, they actually have two of those. For everything you could ever need as a prepper, and I do mean everything, check out safecastle.com today. Hey guys, if you're like me, you want the best quality water for yourself and your family. This is why I've used a Berkey water filter for over six years in my own home. But if you're going to get a Berkey or parts for one you already have, you should deal with the best. And that's Jeff the Berkey Guy Gleason. There's only one official Berkey Guy, and you can only find him at his website at directive21.com. Again, directive, the number is 21 and a dot com. 
And our TSP Business Directory supporter of the day is Fertilizer for Less. They are an authorized dealer of Aragrand Natural and Organic Liquid Fertilizers. They offer concentrated 32-ounce bottles for your small homestead or 275-gallon totes of fertilizers and amendments for larger farms. Check out FertilizerForLess.com in the TSP Business Directory. It's really cool to see how many great businesses we have within this community. FertilizerForLess.com. It's that time of year. That's why there's so many questions about uh, gardening, permaculture, tree planting, stuff like that coming at me right now. Time to get ready for it. So maybe check these guys out. Consider using them for your fertility needs or as an amendment to your fertility needs because you should be doing other things like mulching and composting and stuff like that. Okay, next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Alex Shrug has a bunch of information for us today in the bullet points section. Um, and I'm going to read most of it. So I'm going to go a little faster than normal here. I have two main uh, topics for you today. I have the American Nazis hail George Washington. You might want to read that. And abridging the public's right to know. That's the one I'm going to read. I also have some bullet points on World War II. USA, FDR asks for money for the war. America's at war. The neutrality patrol is launched to protect British shipping. How is that neutral? Yeah, we weren't neutral. Britain, the draft begins. A mutual defense treaty with Poland is signed. Radar stations are built. Balloons are anchored over major cities, and women and children evacuate London for some reason. Um, France, French troops are moved up to the Maginot Line to block the German invasion as if it was World War One. These guys are hosed. Germany, doctors euthanize the sick. Czechoslovakia is occupied. Poland is blitz. It's war. U-boat attacks British shipping. The mass deportation of Jews to Poland begins. Uh, Italy, Albania is overrun. The Pact of Steel Alliance is signed with Germany. Japan, declines the Pact of Steel Alliance with Germany and Italy, continues to beat the tar out of China. USSR, the German-Soviet non-aggression practice signed. USSR, USSR invades Finland and Poland. The USSR is expelled from the League of Nations. The League is worthless. Notable births. I'm not going to read anything about them so I can get through all of this stuff today because i got a bunch of it. Lee Harvey Oswald is born this year. David Frost is born this year. Ian McKellen is born this year. Richard Keel, I will tell you who he is, the seven-foot-tall villain in Moonraker. Uh, Cleavon Little, who was Sheriff Bart in uh, Blazing Saddles. Lily Tomlin who is still living, Ray Stevens, who is still living. He's the guy that sung the song The Streak, you may be familiar with it. This year in music, God Bless America, Over the Rainbow, When the Saints Go Marching In, Moonlight Serenade, and The Beer Barrel Polka, none of which were the, the, the number one song of the year, though. I'm going to play that at the end of the show for you. It is a hard song to listen to, and you'll understand why when I get to it. This year in film, we have Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, Gulliver's Travels of Mice and Men, and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. In other nudes, nylons are on sale. The high dramatic automatic transmission is on sale now. And Amelia Earhart is declared dead. Let's take a look at abridging the public's right to know. I didn't know anything about this. I had no idea this happened. And I find it actually absolutely fascinating. And it's a, a huge part of America coming to an understanding of who Adolf Hitler really is. Adolf Hitler's manifesto entitled Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, is selling reasonably well in America in its abridged English translation. It has been edited for the sensibilities of good Americans and to avoid giving the United States an excuse for entering the war. However, a reporter is working for the International News Service, realizes the abridged version does not accurately reflect what the original German translation or German version does. 
In fact, it is giving an entirely false impression of, to the American people, since it is unlikely that the reporter could ever obtain a copyright permission to translate Hitler's manifesto. He and his buddy worked night and day to translate and publish their own unauthorized translation without permission. They are immediately sued for copyright infringements, which it certainly is. By the time the court rules against them and orders a halt to publication, half a million copies are sold. The proceeds will go to charity. Hitler can go to court. So, who was the reporter? It was the future U.S. Senator Alan Cranston of California, that one-world government pain in my backside. He has since passed away, but the pain remains. He published a translation because he didn't like the way Hitler's propaganda was skewing public opinion. For this one good deed, and it really galls me to say it, all is forgiven. Today I look at how the public is manipulated with propaganda, and I wonder, have we learned nothing at all? Even people that I know understand propaganda don't want to face it. Probably because facing it means they must do something about it, like finding the facts. Thinking about what it means and then telling others the truth. Truth tellers are not popular people. I've told the truth many times, but now that I'm older, I can get away with it. I smile and people laugh. Humor is like that. Speaking the truth out loud, it surprises me. I'd rather think about it. I'd rather they think about it. Um, here's my thought on this. Propaganda is actually dramatically easy. And the reason it's dramatically easy is once you divide a people into a false dichotomy where they think that their side is good and the other side is bad, then all you do is provide them with propaganda that matches their confirmation bias but leads them to the same thing, uh, complete compliance with what the state actually does. And that's the magic of propaganda. People want to be propagandized. People seek out propaganda. When people have already taken a stance on an issue... Well, they, when, they, when they say they research it, what they always do is they research all of the, the, the stuff that's not even, it's not even research. They go find stuff that confirms what they already believe, and then they say they've researched it. Rather than actually examine the counter-arguments deeply and determine if their position makes sense. And as Alex said, that requires work. But it, it's not just that it requires work. It's not just a lazy thing. Because people will spend an awful lot of energy finding stuff that does confirm it for them to make them feel more entrenched in it, and they'll spend an awful lot of time proselytizing that to people. So it's not really laziness, not, not, not in my opinion. Anyway, just, just something to think about. All right, folks, I want to remind you about the Survival Podcast Member Support Brigade today. That's a great way that you can support the show and get a return of investment. We offer discounts to over 60 vendors. There's a lot of video content that you can't get anywhere else. We do video all of our workshops from this point going forward. There's hours of video on our workshops in there for MSB members only, and yes, you can download them. Every episode of the Survival Podcast ever produced in convenient zip files, so you can start with episode one and binge out all the way up to episode 2000 and beyond very, very soon. That's all available, and it's all available for a cost that comes down to 18.3 episodes per day, $50 a year. And you can try the membership out for as little as $5 a month. If you have not yet become a member, please consider supporting the show as a Support Brigade member today. And with that, let's take your first call of the day. Hey, Jack, this is Zach Leary. I uh, just had a quick question for you about uh, plant guilds. Uh, don't know how many plants you need for it to be considered a guild, but I've got to build a raised bed. It's five foot by two and a half, 18 inches deep. Uh, we've bought, I've got two dwarf pomegranate trees coming and uh, didn't know if they'd be crowded in that if I need to build another one. And my plan was to throw some 
Roman chamomile in there as sort of a ground cover and thought it would help make a mulch, you know, after everything drops. Um, and I heard it would attract the bees. Uh, her parents keep bees and pomegranates need bees for pollination. So just wonder what you thought about that, what your suggestions would be on how to make those as prolific as possible. Thank you. Well, is it enough space for two dwarf pomegranates? I, I don't really know how big your dwarf pomegranates are going to get. Dwarf is a strange thing. It doesn't always mean the same thing from one plant to another, or even one species of plant to the other. Uh, you certainly could prune and maintain small pomegranate bushes in an area that size. As bushy as they get, it, it probably wouldn't have much more space. So maybe you want to build a second one and do two of them. I, I, it's going to be up to you in the end. You're, you're not looking at that much space here. You're looking at about 10 square feet. The, the, the pomegranate is going to shade out a significant portion of that. Uh, German chamomile is a great choice to put in there. But here's what I want to kind of point out with this as a, a larger uh, perspective for people. Gilding in permaculture is basically planting species that complement each other together so that everybody can do better, right? But but that's not the original meaning of the word guild when we think of guild, and it's, it's not really the biggest point of gilding with plants. Guild is, the, the guilds of the world were like the first labor unions. So the, the, one of the big purposes of a labor, fight for more money, well, really it's to suppress competition. So, I mean, if, if you look at something like a, you know, a cab driver's union, the, the whole point is if you're not in the union, you don't get to drive a cab in the territory. So, guilds are designed to keep competition out and keep wages up. And, and basically to control the number of people doing a specific thing in a specific area. That's really what guilds are in, with plants. What we're trying to do is keep out the things we don't want by filling it up with things that we do want or we're neutral about. So if, if we if we don't put something in a space, nature will put something in a space. So then we either end up with 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 needing to to manually and mechanically control that. So if weeds come, we pull them, or we put down some kind of a blocker for weeds, etc. If we don't want a space filled, we must fill it or we must control it. And by filling it with plants, the plants do the work. The plants keep it down. And my personal feeling is gilding in permaculture has been blown all out of proportion and it's been made too big a deal of, and I myself was sucked into it for a long time. I was of a belief that we need to sit down and design and figure out guilds. Like, this is an apple tree, and this is the things you plant with an apple tree. And I'm much more of the opinion now that you just put stuff you want together and let it figure itself out. I mean, because the first thing I think of when you talk about gilding and you're going to put pomegranates in to a raised bed, throw some comfrey in there. If you don't want comfrey, don't do it, though. You know, comfrey, plantain, dandelion, German chamomile, put whatever you want in there. And try to, you know, cram as much different stuff in there as possible and let it tell you what it, what, what it likes, what it prefers. You know, and, and then when you're doing something small like this, though, like a, a raised bed, you only have so much area there. And if you, you, what's likely to happen is one or two things are going to take over in that space. So you have two choices then. You can, you can control them 
and, and, and give space for other things to grow because you want more diversity, and that's fine. And in a small space like that, it's not a lot of work, but it kind of is the complete opposite of the point of the guild. The point of the guild is so that you can kind of set it and forget it. Maybe do a little prune once in a while, do some harvesting. Maybe if it starts to grow too far out of the thing, whack the end of it off and, and, and use it for tea or whatever. But I think everybody out there in the permaculture world should stop worrying a lot about guilds. Stop sitting down with colored pencils and designing every single plant that's going to go around every single tree and exactly where it's going to go. Again, I used to do it too. Uh, part of what, you know, for me, is it's hard for stuff to survive here, so I shotgun it and see what survives. And the other thing is the ducks eat everything, right? So if I can, I can design all this perfect stuff around this tree, and a duck comes in and eats it. And, well, that, they, they eat that too fast, it doesn't grow fast enough, so that's not going to work. So I don't do it anymore. But I think, I think getting down to that fine-pointed pencil stuff with, with guild design, it may work to sell designs to customers if, you, if you're a professional designer. But in, in practice... I think it makes more sense just to throw stuff at it, see with sticks. Take, you know, four or five things that you like and, and try to think about, okay, well, this is going to be the shady side. This plant grows in the shade and stick it back in the shade. Maybe if it's behind a taller species, this was a sun lover. So I'm going to put it up front and low growing, you know, kind of think about the layers when you're planting it, but don't overthink it. Don't, don't, don't make it hard because it doesn't have to be. But yeah, throw some comfrey in there too. It'll be great for your fertility yields. Hi, Jack. This is Andrew from Michigan calling. I was calling about a news story today that uh, retailers all over are starting to sell GMO apples that will not turn brown when exposed to the air, literally until they start to rot, and these GMO apples will not be labeled. Besides going to your local neighbor farm, what other recourse do people have than to buy these GMO apples? Any tips would be greatly appreciated. Thanks a lot, Jack. Bye. Okay, as I respond to this, I want you to understand I am not picking on the caller. It is not the caller's fault, what I'm about to say. And it, he's not wrong that GMO apples are coming to stores. But the entire first statement is basically not true. They're going to be in stores everywhere very soon. No. Um, it's actually a very small supply of these new apples. It'll probably be difficult for you to get one if you actually wanted one for in any time soon. Uh, there's three varieties being uh, produced, uh, Granny Smith, um, Fuji, and, and Golden Delicious. For now, that's all that exists. Uh, there's about 85,000 trees planted in Washington and some planted in British Columbia. That sounds like a lot, but compared to the United States apple market, it's a fairly insignificant number. Um, so it's going to be difficult for you to find them. Uh, the company uh, that, that's bringing them out has them being marketed uh, under the name uh, Arctic. So unless you're, And they're also selling them uh, in pre-sliced packaging. So like you can see it, and that's the whole point, that it won't brown, so it looks pretty, and then people will buy it because it's... Spe so unless you're buying one of those three types of apples marketed under the name Arctic, Uh, in pre-sliced packaging for now, you're not getting a GMO apple. Those are the only ones I know of that are on the market and coming soon. Now, here's, here's the next thing. I am not a fan of genetic modification of plants because these things can then go out and replicate themselves in nature where they don't belong in, in, in some instances, in many instances, in fact. But I am not 
a complete phobic when it comes to GMOs in of themselves. I've said this many times, but my much larger concern with, with GMO in our primary food system is what it's being designed to do. So when you take a soybean and you genetically modify it to allow it to be sprayed with glyphosate and it's been soaked two or three times, and that's what they do in the growing season with glyphosate, and then somebody eats it, they're eating Roundup. You do the same thing with atrazine and spray it on corn, and this is not stuff I want in my body. So when I look at apples in general, if I'm eating a non-organic apple, my greater concern, if you, even if I was eating this apple, is what pesticides are on and in this apple. Okay, so it's not, generally you're not going to have a herbicide in an apple. They don't generally spray a tree with an herbicide because you know, trees don't have a lot of problems with weeds growing on, on, on top of them. So it, it's more of the pesticide issue. So if you gave me a choice that I could eat a pesticide-free apple with this genetic modification, which is basically turning off the gene that causes it to brown. Or I could have a non-genetically modified apple, but it was from a orchard where it had been sprayed. Now, these will be both, okay, just to be clear, but I'm trying to make a point here. And, and I, this one, this is an apple from a place where it's been sprayed with chemicals. And I could have either one of those. I would eat the GMO apple. I absolutely would. It's likely less harmful. Again, I don't believe. Now, I, I, I've, I've read a lot of research on this, both pro and anti. I don't believe that the genetic modification itself, in general, with most things, is what poses a health risk. I believe it poses an environmental risk because these traits can then replicate themselves off the reservation because, gee, plants, you know, spread pollen and bees spread pollen and, and what have you. And then that gets into places it doesn't belong. Uh, and I believe it, it, the primary health risk that GMO poses is, again, in the herbicides that it allows the plants to be bathed in that they didn't used to be. And I think most of the problems that we're having health-wise that you can tie back to GMO are more about those pests or those herbicides than they are uh, the genetic modification process itself. I also think GMO poses a serious environmental risk because a lot of the things that they're you know, modifying these plants to do is basically survive when they otherwise wouldn't uh, in, in shitty soil. So we are, we are making it easier for farmers to damage their soil, uh, irreparably maybe, uh, and just keep throwing chemicals on it and still grow. And because of that, we're not putting enough care into soil management in, in agriculture. So I believe those are all risks and are all valid, and I'd prefer to eat a non-genetically modified piece of fruit. But if all you've done is switched off that gene, if that plant then was grown, it couldn't be labeled organic, right? But if it, if it had been grown organically, I would probably prefer it to a, a non-GMO plant that had been grown conventionally is a way to look at that. So how do you avoid GMO apples? By organic. I mean, that it's, it's that simple. And for the time being, you'll keep an eye on this, but for the time being, um, you're, you're, you're only going to be getting these if you buy those specific varieties in prepackaged, pre-sliced form. And look for the name Arctic and don't buy that. But keep an eye on it and see where it goes from here. But don't see, here's what's happened. I know what's happened because I've heard from so many people about this this week. 
And it's all the same thing. It's everywhere, and they're not going to label it, and you'll never know if your Apple's safe to eat again. Well, um, it, this is from clickbaiting. So clickbaiting is when you see the story on uh, on Facebook, and it says, you know, guaranteed indictment for Hillary, Hillary Clinton by Julian Assange. And, of course, we know that hasn't happened yet. Well, whenever you click those articles, they were either, and I hate to use the term because it supports the, the mainstream media in that particular instance, fake news, or the title didn't match the article really at all. You know, a couple, Assange said this is here and this is there and this is there, but he didn't say it's a guaranteed indictment, right? But, but the, the, the author has extrapolated that it must mean that. And, and so what's happened is there's probably been a lot of uh, clickbait-type articles all over Facebook and, and social media, you know, coming to, to, to retailers everywhere. And if you want to read, you know, Fox News or a Fox News, um, article, which I think has covered this accurately. Uh, I have a link in the show notes today so you can learn more, and you'll basically learn what I just told you. Hi, Jack. David from Indiana. Question about vines in a forest with mature oaks and maples. I've got uh, some vines up some of my mature trees, and some of the vines are as thick as like three or four inches. And uh, I know they're choking off the trees, but I, I wonder what your thoughts were from a permaculture standpoint as to whether or not it would be smart to cut these vines or to just leave them alone. Anyway, I look forward to the answer. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, there's a 99% chance that even though you think they're choking off the trees, they're not choking off the trees. There is potential for some vines to wrap around a tree to a point where they can actually begin to cut into the trunk and, and, and damage a cambium, and that can happen, but it, it, it's actually pretty rare. Uh, for it to actually circle the entire thing and, and do it perfectly, and trees are remarkably good at, at dealing with that, and vines have a place in the ecosystem. I'm not like saying we should start up a campaign called Save the Vines or anything like that, but I mean, I wouldn't worry about it very much. Um, with some exceptions. Now, you didn't tell me what kind of vine. Now, you're talking about mature forest, and so I'm thinking you're probably looking at your, your typical perennial vines that grow wild. And if that's the case, there's probably nothing to worry about. And the only reason you should cut them down is if they're in a place you don't want them because you don't like the way they look, or you know sometimes they get like where they're impeding access or something like that. But otherwise, it's, it's just probably not a problem. Uh, trees and vines actually grow together, and generally you'll find... You'll only have <clears throat> significant vines where you have a glade, which is an, a big opening in a forest, where you have kind of a tree that's standing alone and enough light gets in there for it, or you'll have them on your edges where you begin to go in. And that's why a lot of times if you go to a place that's wooded and you want to you know, get back in those woods, you struggle for like well, you know 30 seconds to go 10 feet. Uh, or maybe two or three minutes to go 10 feet, depending on how thick it is. But as soon as you get past that barrier, that edge barrier, it opens up. You can, you can walk in a mature forest and you just feel engulfed and it's a, a beautiful thing. And that's because those types of, of that, that multi-layered effects is, is the edge effect. And as you get further and further into a canopied system, you get mature trees and you don't get that many vines. Now, here's the exceptions. These are the vines that can be real problems for your trees. English ivy. Boston ivy, Japanese honeysuckle, uh, wisteria, and kudzu. Those all can be really a big problem. Uh, not always, but they certainly always can. And there's certainly something to keep an eye on and pay attention to. So again, English ivy, Boston ivy, Japanese honeysuckle, 
uh, wisteria and kudzu, and really any kind of fast-growing, uh, you know, evergreen vine, that type of thing, that can actually coldly dwarf the tree. But if you're talking about, you know, your typical perennial vines, uh, clematis, uh, cross vine, Virginia creeper, uh, moonseed, maypop, even poison ivy, it's just really never a big deal. It, it just isn't. So don't sweat it. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Jake out of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Hey, I was listening to your podcast, and you were talking about bullying. You put four years into thinking about a solution and hadn't come up with one yet. What about this? What if, kind of like the app where somebody gets bullied by a cop or whatever, then you put the word out and people show up. What if you came up with a like, bully cop, an app that kids could put on their phone and then good kids that would like to stand up for kids being bullied could subscribe to the app. It would be localized, like for your high school area. And you, you maybe you could geo-define it. So if some kid getting pushed around in the locker room, uh, and I don't know if it even worked because maybe the kid can't get to the app in time, but if he had a panic button on his phone that he could just discreetly push it, uh, click it, and it sent the word out, hey, I'm getting bullied, come help me. Um, maybe I've, maybe I've jumped the gun on this. Maybe I hadn't thought through it, but I don't know if it would, you know, how do you know where you're at? I guess it'd have to really be geo-specific and send out, hey, here's kids in this part of the school, come help. Maybe 10 or 15 kids would show up and just stand arms crossed and the bully would back down. Something like that. Think on that. Maybe we can figure out how to make something like that work. Um, that exact app exists, and I think you even hinted at it because you talked about being bullied by cops and, and people coming. It, it's called Cell 411, and it's basically like uh, the Uber of uh, of social media or the Uber of people helping each other. And uh, it, it's used for a lot of things. It's it's not just used for things like I've been pulled over by a cop. It's, it's often used for things like I have an emergency right now. I need help. Um, and you can create public or private groups within it for just about any purpose you want. So there, there, there'd be nothing, let's, let's say it this way, logistically from, uh, preventing some sort of a movement, an anti-bullying movement, leveraging cell 411 app technology where, uh, local groups of children and, and young people put together groups that are designed to prevent bullying. And exactly what you said, you, you kind of being picked on and bullied and harassed, and you push a button, and next thing you know, there's there's 20 kids there going, yeah, we don't we don't do that here. Now, th this is the the other thing. So, like I said, logistically, I guess logistics is, uh, is is based on your perspective. I've said over and over and over and over again that the only solution that I see. The impracticality is the school won't allow it, and that is the, the self-policing by the children themselves, which all you're basically saying is leverage technology to make it more effective. So it's you know it's the instance if I'm if I'm a, a kid and I'm being bullied by a, a, a person or maybe a couple of people, um, and I'm you know behind the the, the bleachers or something like that. Or in a locker room, or or wherever, and 
there's no one there to see, to know, to help me. Or it's like there's one person who wants to, but they're afraid that they're going to get bullied too because they're maybe not really capable of standing up to whoever's perpetrating the bullying on me. Or they're worried that maybe they'll be effective now, but they'll be paid back later or something like that. So you have a body count issue. So the technology would simply allow the self-policing to be more effective, and dramatically so. And with Cell 411, your groups can have moderators. Uh, they can be private. They can You can throw somebody out of a group. You can remove them. You can block them. You can just not let them in. So over time, these groups could develop and mature to where the good kids, if you want to put, put them that way, the anti-bullying uh, uh, protectors, uh, the co-protectors, would be able to, to flush out But you can almost see a technological war coming, can't you? So then the bullies create their own like bully groups. Like we think these kids are all spazzes, and you know if there's like 20 spazzes, we'll have like 10 jocks come and kick their ass or something like that. But I don't know that it would be that effective on the other side. The bully is generally um, not well supported by the majority of the population in a school. They have their little clique that they're, they're you know part of or something, or maybe they have a couple friends. And they kind of get sorted out in a pecking order. Who can bully who? It, 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 see, I think it could work. I just don't know that it can work it, with the way that the, 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 the schools are run, the government schools are run. Because what would happen if these kids started using cell 411? Johnny is uh, sitting outside at recess or whatever the hell they call it now. He's eating his, his peanut butter. Oh, he can't have a peanut butter sandwich. He have peanuts in school. He's eating his jelly sandwich. Uh, or he's eating his uh, McDonald's that he bought from the, the, the school lunch, and uh, some kids come over that don't like Johnny, and they start picking on Johnny. Maybe they're not hitting him. Maybe they're just harassing him. Hey, look at Johnny eating his nuggets like a moron or whatever, right? Johnny picks his phone up. He hits the button, and, you know, 15, 20 kids come up and go, what's going on, Johnny? And, you know, hey, what are you guys doing here? Maybe you guys should all, all leave. Maybe you should leave Johnny alone. And then, you know, this, the, the teachers that are on patrol see this big group of kids kind of pushing this other kid off. What do you think you're going to do? And when they say, hey, you know, he was picking on him, so we stepped in. Oh, you can't do that. You're all wrong. You're all going to ding whatever. Now, I think there might come a point where our young people, because I think our young people are beginning to understand this problem maybe better than we are because they're dealing with it in a different way than we did. And I think there's more and more support among our youth for doing something about it. We might have a little bit of positive anarchy in that, in that, in that group of people. Well, you can send us all to the dean. And it doesn't, it, doesn't it actually strengthen their position when, you know, who, who, who's, who's, who's in charge of this? Well, we all are. We all don't want to see bullying. We're not going to let him do that to, to him anymore. And there's, there's 15, 20. It's a little harder for the school to suppress that. So I don't know. I don't know. It would seem like you could almost create like a separate movement and just say that it's using this technology instead of trying to reinvent the wheel. Like, because cell 411 works. It's a fantastic app. Everybody should get it and start playing around with it and learn how it works. And cops hate it. Cops hate it because people don't use cops. And there's a reason people don't use cops. Unless it's something you really need a cop for, you don't want to bring a cop in because you keep seeing news stories about people getting shot. People's dogs being shot, you know? And I'm, I'm not bashing cops, I'm just saying, this shit happens. This shit happens. And, and, and some things, 
you're just better off dealing with privately if you can. And cell 411, cell 411 is being even used for things like an Uber replacement. I say it's an Uber of this or the Uber of that. There's people on cell 411, they're basically, I'll give you a ride. And you can contact them and say, I give rides in this area. When and how much? And they negotiate their own rates. It's a fantastic app. It really is. Now, what you have to understand is your safety within any group on cell 411 is your own responsibility. You have to use your head. It's not like Uber, where Uber is saying, this driver is our driver, he's had a background check, his car has insurance, here's his, his reviews and ratings, though that's beginning to be done as well. You know, these apps, you, when, when a person's new, they have to earn trust, but as they earn trust, when you have somebody that has 20 or 30 or 40 people that's dealt with them, says this is a good guy, you know, do you need, do you need Uber to tell you? Is it, what, what means more to you? I mean, I'll put it this way. When you go on Amazon and the company says their product's great and they have like a certification, it's electronic product, they have an ANSI certification uh, or something like that. And uh, they, they, and they have a warranty and all that stuff. And you look at it, you think, yeah, yeah, yeah. What means more to you? What they say about their product and what the government you know certifies about their product? Or when you go down to reviews and there's 500 people bought that product and 92% of the re reviews are five-star? Which one of those actually matters more to you? See, this is why the state is afraid of technologies like cell 411. Because the opinion of your fellow person, your fellow man, is more valuable to you, and always has been, than the opinion of the state. Meaning many of the state licenses and certifications are unnecessary. The market is perfectly equipped to police itself. And The, the limitation has always been, well, how do you know? Technology is, is, is solving this. What we're seeing is, is techno-anarchy. And if people are like, well, that's hacking and destroying computer mainframes. No, this is techno-anarchy. This is, this, is, this is an anarchist tool, big time. And could it work to help with bullying? Oh, no. It's up to kids to figure it out. They know the tech better than most of us. Um, I... I, I Be happy to see it if it happened. I'll, I'll tell you that. Good idea, Jake. I'm shocked I never thought of it that way. Hey, Jack. This is John from Virginia calling in. I've got a question about Irapans. Uh, you used to talk about these a lot on the show, but uh, I haven't heard about them in a while. We put some in an orchard pretty well, but we seem to have better luck with just mulch. We're in uh, 7B in Virginia, so we get a lot of rain. Uh, I was wondering, do you, do you feel these things are still valuable, or is it probably better just to go with a mulch the crap out of it, and uh, and forget it. Thanks. Looking forward to your reply. Bye. Well, I mean, first of all, I think you should always do what works best for you. If you trial two things and you can see a noticeable better result in something one way than the other, then that's what you should do. Okay, And, and I will say the Irapan was developed in Israel. It was developed to uh, to work well in desert and desert-like conditions where water is at a premium. And it was designed to do a few things. One, to, to block um, uh, evaporation and also to block heat so that the, or actually to hold heat. So it actually keeps the roots warmer in cold conditions and, and cooler in hot conditions. But it really is not a product that you take and put on a tree and leave it there for the tree's entire life. It is a establishment product. 
So there's a couple different ways I use it here. One is you take a very small tree, like something you started from seed, or you plant the seed right in the ground, and we'll stay off that a little bit because I have a question about that in a second. Um, and then it's there until that tree gets into good shape. You know, it gets up to four, five, six foot whip, and it's starting to bush out, and it's doing well. And at some point, that ear pan goes away and can be reused to establish another tree. Um, or you have a new tree that you're just planting, and it gives it some extra support during that period of time. It keeps the root zone from being baked by the sun. It helps attract additional moisture. When there is irrigation, it does go straight to the plant's roots, etc. Now, you think about the size of an ear pan, though. An ear pan is about one foot by two foot, I guess, somewhere in that range off the top, maybe a little bigger. Uh, so how, how long does it take before that root zone extends beyond the ear pan? You know, if that tree ends up with a five foot canopy, it's got a five foot root zone, or at least it should. It's going to fall over if it doesn't. See how that works, right? We have to counterbalance things. So at that point, that ear pan really is, it isn't hurting anything per se, but it's really not needed to be there anymore. That's not its purpose. So that's how I use them. I use them to establish trees. And I will tell you, they work fantastic for me in, in my climate. Is it, is there a noticeable difference? Yes. Put an ear pan on a tree and put another tree right next to it, and they're the same two trees. And the one is thriving, the other one's suffering to get through its first year in this brutal climate of mine. So that's how I would make the decision. But I think they're a fantastic product. We have a company called Marsh Creek Farmstead, and uh, they're in the MSB as a supporter, and they offer discounts on the Europan. And if you're considering trying them out this year, I'd I'd suggest getting them from Marsh Creek and getting your discount. Uh, if you're going to buy you know 20 or 30 of them, it's a big chunk of your MSB back right there. Um, again, I, I really like them. I also think they're pretty damn good for uh, annuals, like putting around tomato plants, etc. They, they, they seem to work really well for that. They're affordable, and they last a long time. I, I've had mine now for over two seasons. This will be the third season with them, and I have not had one yet where I'm like, okay, that has to be gotten rid of. So they're long-lasting product. Now, mulch and trees. Let's understand something about what a tree would like. Um, near its trunk, it would like nothing. It would like nothing there. Uh, what a lot of people do with mulch around trees is you have it, it tapers really, really thin on the outside, and then it, it gets thicker and thicker and thicker, and then right up to the tree. Um, you don't want mulch laying up against the trunk of your tree, so a lot of people, even though they do that, then they pull it back a little bit and keep it off of the, the bark because it can cause the bark to actually rot. Um, what the tree would actually prefer is that your mulch is thick, out at the edge of the canopy and tapers thin, and there's almost nothing by the trunk. The reason we, we cover the area near the tree when the tree is young is because it dries out, it's harsh environments, etc. As that tree begins to cr create shade for itself, that becomes less of an issue. We also don't want grass like choking the tree out, so that's another reason we'll use either some sort of weed block or what have you right up around the tree. But if, if conditions are right for it, that tree would actually prefer that at least a few inches around where the trunk and the root flare meets the ground it would just be dirt. I know it seems counterintuitive, but that's if you go into forests, um, you'll see tons of leaf litter, but it depends on what time of year you're there. You'll actually see a lot of exposed dirt around trees after you've gone through your, your cold, wet winter and that those leaves have composted down and become forest soil. So 
Um, again, but I, I, I still stick by this. Your mileage and my mileage may be very, very different doing the same things because of our climate, because of our soil types, because of the exact species that we're growing. And whenever you do anything, especially, you know, you don't just do it once, but you do, you know, 10 here and 10 there. And there's a consistency that, that method A works better for you. You should do that until you test something else and, and the new thing works better for you. Well, let's take another one. Jack, this is Zeke in Ohio. How do you process firewood without a chainsaw and an extended outage? Example, there's no electricity. You're out of gasoline. You need fire uh, wood for fuel, for heat, for cooking. What tools do you recommend? Thanks. Okay, let's come at this two ways. Let's let's come at it from the Mad Max scenario is not coming way, and then let's come at it from the let's answer it anyway from maybe just a desire standpoint. Um, you're not going to have an extended outage that's going to last for a very, very long time uh, where you're going to be out sawing up wood and chopping it down with an axe and stuff like that and, and, and living like they did you know, in the little house on the prairie days. It's not going to happen. And if, if extended means a couple months, then first of all, your wood should be ready and to go. Uh, you, you know what I mean? If you need it, you need it seasoned and split and stacked long before you actually burn it. So the, the first step then is to process a lot of firewood and have it in reserve like a battery. So the first thing we put in reserve is the wood itself. Then, of course, we should be storing gasoline and oil and grease so that we can maintain our saw. If we also add an electric chainsaw to that, then we have, if we have any sort of electrical uh, capabilities, we can run that saw on electricity. That's pretty high draw. Um, so, you know, are, you know, you, you almost like if you don't have gas for your chainsaw, you don't have it for your car, you don't have it for your generator, etc. Um, again, if we store 60 gallons of gasoline in, in jugs numbered 1 through 12 and rotate them by every every month, once a month, we take, you know, January, take number one jug, dump it in the vehicle, fill it up at the gas station and put it back. In February, we do it number two. You, you, you can run a chainsaw for a long effing time with 60 gallons of fuel. So I just think if it's a concern, like... I'm afraid that I won't be able to process my firewood that, you know, really I don't think that's valid, okay? Um, I'm not a believer in the end-of-the-world scenarios. Um, you know, there was the one-in-a-million shot at it. Let's prepare for the other, you know, 999,000 things that are going to happen. All right, so looking at it a different way. Maybe you just want to be able to do this. Maybe you want to be able to do things with hand tools. Maybe you want to live a little bit minimalist. Maybe you want to live a little, a little bit primitive, uh, what have you. Well, what I'm going to suggest first is one way you can process firewood with no power if it needs to be split is they do make a hydraulic log splitter that you pump it like a jack. I think it's like 10 tons. I have one. Uh, they're available from Harbor Freight. I'll see if they still sell them, and if they do, I'll put a link to it. So you can split wood like that. But if we're really going to go to a world without chainsaws, then the smartest thing we can do is we don't use wood that requires splitting, except maybe a little bit for kindling or something like that that we can do with batoning. So now what we want to do is we want to cut 
it, probably as sustainably as possible, we're going into, you know, like coppicing or pollarding, which is generally more accurate. So we're going to cut trees higher up and we're going to take limbs off and we're going to, we're going to buck those limbs to burn size pieces and we're not going to split it. And, and there's really only two tools you need to be able to do that and do that fairly well. We're also going to harvest anything that's fallen or already dead. And the tools we would use would be a good hatchet and a bow saw. And if you have a good bow saw, and I have a recommendation, I actually have, I, you know, if y'all wanted to, if I wanted to, you know, kind of manage a piece of property, and I wanted to not use a chainsaw or very seldom use a chainsaw. And what I wanted to be able to do was to, to do exactly what I said, to go into the woods and find smaller trees, and we're going to harvest, like, it's just tree small enough we could harvest this thing and, and let it, let it, it's a tree that'll, that'll pollard and come back, and we'll let it do that. You know, it's a big, tall strip and pole now, but we're going to hack it off about chest height and let it pluck out from there. Uh, then we take our bow saw, and we cut it at slightly an angle, and when we're almost through it, we push it over, it falls down, and we buck it up. Bucket just means cut it to smaller pieces. We have that hatchet. That hatchet's great for cutting all of our slash off, all of our little twigs and, and, and fancy things. And what we're going to do is we're going to make brush piles and let it dry, and then we can come back and we can take those brush piles once they're dry, and they're talking small, like pencil size. We can break that by hand, you know, or... If we have a lot of it, if it's not too bushy, if it's not too much of a pain in the ass, we can take a hatchet and we just chop it on a chopping block and we make piles of kindling and piles of, of bullwood. And, and we're good. The, the bow saw I recommend, and this is a great saw to have uh, for, for a variety of reasons, not just because you want to be able to do it. It's made by a company called Bacho. And I would really recommend if you're going to use it a lot, like you're going to actually do what I just said, that you get two of them. There's a 30-inch bow saw, which will cut anything that you want to cut with a bow saw. And what I like about a long blade and a bow saw is that when you get that long motion going, you get through wood very, very quickly. And then there's a 21-inch uh, bow saw, but they make two 21-inches, a standard-looking one and one with a pointed nose. I get the one with the pointed nose. So if you're taking limbs off and they're in tight spaces, that pointed nose lets you get longer strokes, even though you get a shorter blade. So between those two bow saws, you can cut just about anything. The other thing to know about bow saws, good bow saws and good blades, you get a green wood blade or a, a, a dry wood blade. They're actually designed specifically to cut either dry wood or green wood. And what I would want to do if I'm going to be doing most of my harvesting of firewood with a bow saw, I would prefer to, whenever I can, be cutting green wood because it cuts easier because it, it's softer. And it, it cuts relatively easy. It also cleans really easy. And what I mean by cleans is when you got all those bushy, sticky things up there and you take that axe and you just, or a machete works really good for that and strip that off, it cuts real, real easy. Where once that's hard, it's kind of chinky. But I would have blades, a storage, storage of blades, greenwood and drywood for both bow saws. I'm changing a blade on a bow saw is really, really quick. I have links to both of those bow saws in the show notes. I don't really have a preferred uh, hatchet. Uh, a good quality hatchet. I like wooden handles on my tools, hickory handle, uh, and, and maybe, you know, uh, a boy's axe or a hand and a half axe, uh, for doing some tree felling and stuff like that. And the stuff you need to keep is sharpened. But the, the best way to process that again would be we find trees that will compass that we're basically trimming. We cut green wood. We buck it while it's green. 
We stack it to let it dry. We don't cut anything bigger than maybe, say, our forearm. We have no need to split it. And, and you can do very well for yourself. And then what we're going to have to do, if we want to take this course, the non-chainsaw course, we're going to want to do a little bit of firewood every day or every other day all year long. We're constantly looking. We're figuring out what trees we can manage this way. And we have to develop a rotational harvesting. So we cut this, these branches off this tree, it'll pollard back, but we need to give that tree then five years, seven years before we cut that particular tree again. And we need to be eyeballing and looking, where, where's a dead tree? We find dead trees, we harvest those. But again, if it's a, if it's a Mad Max scenario where you think you're going to be living off of wood piles uh, for five years with no gasoline because uh, the grid went down, the Russians invaded, whatever, then I think you're coming at it the wrong way. But if you're coming at it from just a lifestyle standpoint, bow saw and hatchet. And there's other tools, but those two, two will do so much for you. Um, we, used to, we used to do a lot of car camping, and we would camp in places where you can cut uh, wood. And we there you're always going to take a, a, a dry wood blade because you don't want to cut a green tree because if you do, you can't burn it well. But just a bow saw and a hatchet uh, and maybe a machete and, you know, for a, a campfire for the night, it take 15, 20 minutes in places where you can do it without getting yelled at to go out and acquire whatever you need to burn. So, I mean, if you can do that, you can, that's always been kind of my first choice uh, using them. Uh, another tool, though, that's great for cutting this smaller wood, and I even have a video on it, is a reciprocating saw. And it, it takes a lot less energy to charge up, you know, a, a, an 18 volt DeWalt battery uh, than it does to, uh, to to run a chainsaw. So that's that's another thing to look at. If you you know if you have any type of electrical charging capability, then a reciprocating saw is fantastic for stuff up about your arm size. You get a, a long wood blade for your your reciprocating saw, start buzzing. And the, the the greatest way to do that when you can with if you got like a lateral limb is go out to the end and just keep taking you know bucket right off the tree. You drop in two foot sections or eighteen inch sections at a time. Anyway, I hope that helps you and gives you some things to think about. Don't worry about the world ending. Uh let's go ahead and take another call. Hi Jack. Uh Donovan from the Portland, Oregon area calling in again. I've got a few questions for you about anarchy. Um I love your perspective on anarchy. Can you point to some good resources online um, for the anarchy that you um, talk about? Um, I've done some searches, and I've had a lot of real idiotic conversations with people online and arguments, and it seems like the prevalent form of anarchy online that people seem to, to know about or uh, preach about is the anarcho-communism, which really isn't anarchy at all, but it's just communism, period. But uh, that seems to be the popular anarchy that I find. Um, also, uh, the non-aggression principle, I can't find any connections to anarchy directly. It seems to be more connected to uh, libertarianism and, and volunteerism. So where do you connect anarchy to that? Is there a connection somewhere... Um, hope that makes sense. Also, is there a difference between anarchy and volunteerism, really? All right. Sorry for all the questions, Jack. Uh, thanks uh, for all you do. Bye.
Well, let's start out with some resources. I have some links in the uh, show notes today. Um, one website that I think would be great for you to start reading their blog and going back and reading their past articles is uh, notbeinggoverned.com. The site's called The Art of Not Being Governed. I don't think it's associated with the book at all, but it's kind of playing off of that book, um, which is a book on anarchy. And it's a fantastic blog. It is written very much from an, an anarcho-capitalist viewpoint, a voluntarist viewpoint. And another website that I think you'd find very useful is called Five Steps to Anarchy. And it's coming out of very much a, an anarchist, voluntarist um, uh, standpoint. Um, uh, there's a Facebook page that I think shares some really great content. Um, and it's called New Gateway Anarchists and Voluntarists. And it's New Gateway is spelled N-U Gateway, N-U-G-A-T-E-W-A-Y, as one word with a capital N and a capital G. And I have a link to that Facebook page. Uh, probably the best YouTube person to listen to about anarchy, and I'll, I'll caveat with a, a but in a second, is Larkin Rose. Uh, Larkin's done some great stuff on YouTube. And again, his name is Larkin, L-A-R-K-E-N, Rose, R-O-S-E, like the flower. And I have links to his YouTube channel. Now, Larkin is the kind of guy that I agree with him like 85% of the time, and I disagree like 15, okay? And generally, that's not a big deal to me because it's philosophical disagreements. Um, but in Larkin's case, he's one of these cop bashers. All cops are evil bastards. Um, so, you know, I actually have an issue with that. Uh, and, and a person like me who says, I don't like the state. I wish there was no state. But in general, cops are just people like the rest of us. And there's, there's good ones and there's bad ones and there's really shitty ones. And, and we should have respect for our fellow man, he would refer to me as a bootlicker. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm prefacing that and I'm telling you that so you understand that like he's gone to an extreme. And, and, and keep, keep that in mind too when we have the closing segment today and the song that we're going to have. What happens when we go to extremes? So, or what other people, the whole society goes to extreme, what, what people are willing to do or who they're willing to align with when there's an extreme injustice. All right, and that's why Larkin feels that way. he feels like it's an extreme injustice that that basically uh, the state is stealing everything that it takes in the form of tax or fees or what have you. And I agree, um, and therefore the cop is responsible because he enforces the will of the state. I, in some levels, agree with the, the sentiment of that, but I also understand that not everybody is awakened yet to that fact, or many people are even awake to that fact, but feel like. But we have to deal with the situation as it is because it's not going to change tomorrow. And I, that's, that's pragmatism. And I try to practice pragmatism in what I do. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll leave the discussion on, on the resources there in my preface with, with Larkin. Uh, Stefan Molyneux, I don't have a link to him. He calls himself an anarchist and sometimes I really think he isn't. Sometimes I really think he isn't. He's maybe just also a pragmatist. But he does very good coverage of what's going on in the world from an anarcho-libertarian perspective. He also seems in love with Donald Trump, which, well, that's not very anarchist-libertarian. I, I can support many of the things Trump wants to do and oppose many of the things he wants to do, but I'm not going to advocate for it. You know, we're, we, we want this ruler instead of that ruler when we're supposed to be saying we want no rulers. Um, but that's a philosophical difference. You see what I'm saying? It's different than, you know, you're a bootlicker because you're nice to a cop. Or you would defend any cop. I mean, come on, man, you think you're being radically stupid, is what I think. So now let's talk a little bit about your concern. Um, 
first that like when you look for anarchism, you seem to find uh, all mostly communists. And here, here's the thing about anarchism: all of these flavors thereof, they're either anarchism or they're not. You can be an anarcho-communist if you believe in voluntary communism. Meaning that you get to go have your commune, you get to, to run things however you want with the people who want to be with you, but you cannot compel me to be part of it. The minute you want to compel me to be part of what you want to do, you are no longer an anarchist. Because you have, in fact, violated the non-aggression principle. And no matter what anybody tells you, the one constant that, that exists in anarchy is the non-aggression principle. Without that, we've lost anarchy. Because the minute we say, well, we have to seize the means of production for the workers, which is the communist-slash-anarcho-communist viewpoint, well, then there must be a centralized method of control, and you're also going to interfere with me running my own means of production for the people that want to do business with me, even if I want to leave you alone. So then you're not an anarchist, because that central authority immediately becomes a ruler, and therefore, it's not anarchy. So yes, the non-aggression principle is absolutely fundamental to, to, to true anarchism. Okay, anarchism and voluntarism. The terms are used interchangeably, and then there are also some people defend those terms you know, very vehemently as being different than each other. The, the, the fundamental principle of voluntarism is that all acts, exchanges, etc. between individuals should be voluntary. So everything that happens between me and you should be voluntary. Anything that happens between me and some sort of uh, authority that issues a, a license, or not even a license, a so you would call it more of a certification, should be voluntary. The state shouldn't be able to compel me to, if I want to do this action, I have to go to this entity and I have to do it, or they can come force me not to, unless they have rightful claim to the property. So if someone says... I have a, somebody owns a 20,000 acre hunting preserve and uh, they allow people to come hunt there for a fee. But they say, so that I know you're safe, I want you to have taken um, a hunting safety course from one of these three or four companies that I recognize as valid. That's fine. But when somebody says, well, to hunt anywhere, you have to go to this company, well, then that's central authority. Because somebody without rightful claim to the property is telling you what you must do on it, if, if that makes sense. And the state says, we have rightful claim to all property within the borders of our nation, including yours, that you think is yours. We also have claim to that. We can tell you what to do on your own land. You got it? So that's so the voluntarism is anarchism. It's and somebody's gonna get the people are gonna get really nitpicky about this. I'm gonna let it go. I'm just gonna if you believe whatever you want, it's philosophical, I don't give a shit. Okay? But I think more and more people are referring to themselves as voluntarists for the same reason people started calling themselves preppers versus survivalists. The mainstream has done so much to demonize the word anarchy that you cannot say it to somebody without them getting the complete opposite of what you mean in their head. They won't listen, and then you get arguments like my roads and my schools and burn, burning cars in the streets. So when you say voluntarist to somebody, it doesn't sound scary. And you might get the question of, oh, what's that? And then you get to actually tell them what anarchism is. I believe that all actions between people should be voluntary, that no one should be compelled to give up their property or their freedom 
to anyone else unless it's something they willingly want to do. Now, the average person who, who, who first hears that, you know what they think? Even if they don't agree with the totality of it, they think that's a perfectly reasonable assertion. That's a com completely reasonable thing to say that you, I shouldn't be able to come to you and make me give you my, your stuff. I shouldn't be able to say, you know what, you, I saw you work really hard on what you did, but you have more than me, so I would like 10% of what you've done, and if you don't give it to me, I'm going to point this gun at you. Now, I'm not pointing the gun at you yet, but what I'm telling you is that I am, I am asking you for 10% of what you've done, and if you don't give it to me, then really, to make the analogy more clear, somebody else will come put a gun in your face, And either make you give me the, 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 the 10%. And if you don't, and you refuse even then, the person with the gun won't take the 10%. They'll put you into a, a cage, and they'll keep you there until you give me the 10%. Or we'll forcibly take the 10%, and then maybe you'll go to the cage for a while, and maybe we'll let you go. And maybe because you didn't give it to us, instead of taking 10% for a penalty for not giving it to me, you're going to give me 20%. Anybody would look at that and say, that's extortion and eventually theft. Okay? Blackmail, right? So what the voluntarist says is just because you have a shiny badge or just because you've been elected into office by other people who wanted you there doesn't change that dynamic. It's still theft. You're still stealing my rightfully earned property. I went into a voluntary association with someone or something or some company or whatever that in return for my efforts or my risk, Uh, or my investment, or my physical labor, or my knowledge, they chose voluntarily to put into my hands this $100. And you're telling me now I have to give you 20 of it, you know, or 25 of it, depending on my tax rate. And that's theft. And, and, and most people that would call themselves voluntarists are going to be very much in line with this This philosophy of anarchy. But, but I, I think where the whole breakdown happens and where people start saying, well, anarchy is only you know, communism. No, 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 because now what you've said is you have total freedom, but you have to think the way I want you to. So it's the anarcho-capitalists, it's the true libertarians. and like So what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? And some people will say six months or whatever. You know, it was six years for me because nobody explained the shit that I'm explaining to you guys today the way that, 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 that I'm explaining it. No one explained it to me this way. Uh, people threw around, you know, you know bootlickers of cops and stuff like that, and that doesn't help. If you really do that, you're not helping. You're really not helping the movement at all. But it is the anarcho-capitalists. It is the libertarians that aren't quite to anarchism yet. It is the voluntarists that will always say, if you want to be a socialist, go ahead. That's fine. And because we're pragmatists, we'll also say, we'll, in, in our group, we probably have some socialism. Now, it's voluntary socialism, meaning if you don't want to be part of it, you, you're not compelled to stay here. We just might say, like, if you want to be part of what we're doing, then this is what it takes to be part of what we're doing. You know, maybe it is that, okay, so we all live in this community, and we've created, like, and this would be a place where an HOA would make sense. If there wasn't, you know, federal, state, and county codes and permits and all this shit, and, and you and I and 50 other people wanted to build a, a, a housing development, 
then we would set up our own HOA run by ourselves. And we would say, this is, you know, these are the restrictions within this area. And this is, because we're going to have some common spaces and all, there's going to be a fee of, let's say, $50 a month that every homeowner or family, or for each house, there has to be $50 a month into the kitty. It's managed this way. We, we practice a form of democracy in deciding who does what as service to the community. But that, that authority that's granted by an election, it's not like we have to wait till next year. It can be immediately revoked. If, 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 the, if the community is in unison, that we don't want this person to do that anymore, they're immediately, their, 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 their authority uh, is taken from them. That's true anarchy. That's government. It's an anarchist government. Because when I say, you know what, I don't want to be part of this anymore, and I want to leave, you don't say you can't leave. You can't renounce your, 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 your citizenship to our community. We, we still want your $50 even after you leave. You can go somewhere else. And if it was done that way and there's a person that already has a house built here and we say we want to annex you into our little HOA type thing, he should be able to tell us to F off. F the F off. That's that's anarchy. And, and what that means is the neighborhood down the road doesn't get any say in how we live. And and going into that community would be 100% voluntary. And if it was done as an anarchy, a true anarchist system... If one person says no to a change, then it doesn't happen. Especially if that change is a further restriction. Further restriction. So there's just ways to think about this and, and understand like that's really what voluntarism has become. It is its own movement, but in the end it's still anarchism. The final thing with libertarianism. I, I say this again just because I think it's important to understand. My belief is that all anarchists are libertarians, but not all libertarians are anarchists. Meaning when you practice libertarian in its purest form, it becomes anarchy. But what most people that call themselves libertarians are, are they, they are for a minimalist state. They are minarchists. They want a little bit of cancer left behind. And I spent a lot of my, I'm not putting it down, I spent a lot of my life being that person. Again, because nobody explained how this all worked to me. I, I really think a lot of people that think they know don't even know the you know maybe they know after you, you explain it to them but a lot of people that claim to be anarchists don't even know the things that I'm I'm saying to you right now. So I think the the important thing to come away with is what you believe is what's most important. So you don't really need somebody to define these things for you. What you should be more concerned about is how do I practice them in my daily life. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, I have a question about when's the best time to start trees from seed. Should I start them in a pot in the spring and then plant them out in the fall to plant them directly in the ground in the spring and give them some sort of protection that first year? Now, this is Scott up in Texas. Thank you. In many ways, right now or very soon is, is the time, um, especially with things like apples or pears or something like that because many times those seeds need to be cold stratified which basically means putting them in something moist like paper towel or vermiculite in a plastic bag and stick them in the refrigerator for 30 to 60 days and if you did that right now 30 days from now would be about february 26th uh, or like march 28th if it's a 60-day stratification so kind of the process really needs to get on the way if you're going to do it this year right now. And some seeds require much longer cold, cold stratification. So you need to know that. Okay, now the next thing. 
Should you do it in a pot? Should you do it for protection? Whatever. Let's look at the, the kind of the hierarchy of what's best if possible. The very best case scenario for a seed, a tree, is that the seed that it grows from is placed to the spot that that tree will be forever. The, 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 when that tree goes away, it's because it's been cut down for timber or it died of, is of old age or some, some horrific thing like a pest infestation or something killed it. That's best. That's how it happens in the forest. Nobody takes, uh, you know, the, the forest doesn't have someone come out and, and pick up an acorn and take it home and cold stratify it and stick it in a pot and then grow it a little bit and put it in a bigger pot and keep it protected, whatever that might mean, and then one day when it's six foot tall, take it out and plant it in the ground with uh, an unhappy root system. So best case scenario, we take that stratified seed and we give it some sort of protection so it doesn't get eaten You know, maybe we put some uh, wire around it, or maybe we put an ear pan down, and we put that seed straight in the ground. And maybe we put three or four right there in that one little area, because uh, two is one, you know, and one is none. Three is for me, four is even more. Five will keep a tree alive, because seeds are cheap. And if we have a, a home run and all of them come up, we just kill... You know, maybe we kill one and we wait a little while to make sure they're really all going to make it. Then we kill another one. Eventually, we, as they're competing, we, we choose a winner and we, we call out the weakling. We let that tree grow. And that tree will be the strongest, most vigorous it could ever be. Number two, next best. We want to get our trees off to a head start. Maybe we want to start them right now. We have seeds that don't need to be stratified or they're already stratified. We have a greenhouse, we have uh, we have grow lights and a tent, and we're going to put them out in the garage and the grow lights or whatever, they're going to be protected from hard frost, uh, So and we, we can keep the soil warm enough to get them to germinate, and we're going to grow them in a very small container, and the thing I recommend, I have a link in the show notes for you today, is called containers. A lot of different options, these ones I've used, and they work really well. And if you're going to buy them and invest in them, I recommend you buy the black ones that are UV-stabilized, because they'll last longer. The white ones, I, they were the ones I went to first, And very, very soon into the first season, they got brittle and cracked from being in the sun. So I'd buy the black ones. And they're, they're, they, they're cone containers. They're like a cone-shaped container. And they have little grooves, four on each, you know, one on each, say, six o'clock, uh, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, and nine o'clock. What those grooves do is, is that little tree seedling starts to grow, and that root hits that, that edge of that container, and it starts to circle. It hits that line. And when it hits that line, that root goes straight down. There's a little hole in the bottom, and it grows really straight, deep roots. And hopefully, if it's a tree with a tap root, you get a nice tap root. If you're going to do that, I've had people like, oh, I'll keep them alive over the winter. You don't keep perennial trees alive over the winter. They keep themselves alive. They go dormant. That's what they do. Right, You want the leaves to fall off. What you want to do with these small containers is as soon as that tree's big enough to survive, put it where it will live forever in the ground. And again, give it some protection. Maybe use tree tubes or, or what have you, but get it in the ground as soon as possible. Next best. Next best is we have something, our propagation bed with really loose, friable, sandy soil. We put our trees in there. We grow them maybe even for a full season. So we grow one-year whips. And while the tree's dormant, we pull and dig the tree out, and we keep as much of the root system as tact as possible, and we plant that tree while it's dormant. That's next best. After that would be, 
we grow the tree in a, a larger container and maybe even it's potted up and we grow it for two or three seasons and we plant it like a tree that you buy in a store. And that's kind of the hierarchy of what's best. Now, there's reasons you might start them in containers and you might not be able to use containers. If you're doing chestnuts or something, you have to find something a little bit, because they're a big seed, right? You find something a little bit more fitting and then you grow it to, you know, here's the thing. Little trees grow really fast. You plant an apple seed and it, man, in, in like three months, that thing is, is going. And you get it out. So maybe you want to start early in the, the year of planting, or maybe you just want to make sure that the tree's got enough of a, of a woodiness to it that it's, it's not really susceptible to pests that like cutworms will cut it off like it's a bean plant or something like that. Um, or you just want it to be big enough that you can kind of see it so it doesn't get trampled or whatever, right? And that's why I would say like the container, the containers or some other appropriate planting vessel and grow, growing them until, you know, so here's the thing you might do. And, and in this climate, it would be kind of best. We take that tree and we grow it in that container and we keep it in a place where it's got some shade cloth, it's protected, it doesn't get beat down by the sun, and we grow it out for half a season. So that would be six months. So March, April, May, June, July, August, right? End of August, beginning of September now is when that tree is kind of to the size where we want to plant it. Maybe we start it a little bit later in the year so we can get all the way into like September 30th, and we want to put those trees out as seedlings in the fall in the fall or we can hold them over and plant them in the winter or the early spring what we don't want to do unless we absolutely have to and have no other choice is be putting trees in any form in the ground in the middle of summer that's the absolute worst time that's the absolute worst time uh, and again think of how a tree grows in the wild seed lands in the leaf litter it gets soil contact and it just grows it sits out there all winter long So unless we're trying to do something like grow a lemon in Montana, we're probably better off put the seed in the ground, give it some protection, and let it grow. Or we grow small trees and we get them in the ground in early spring, or we hold them through summer and we put them in in you know early to mid to late fall, depending on the climate. And we don't worry about cold if we're planting a tree that belongs to the climate we're growing it in. It's okay that it gets cold. It's okay that all the leaves fall off, just like all the rest of the trees out there. Let's take I think we got one more today. Hey Jack, this is Greg from Wilmington, Delaware, and I wanted your thoughts on bullet casting. I've got access to a lot of range scrap, which uh, I've turned quite a bit into ingots. Uh, it is a smelly process, and I'm sure it's none too good for you, but uh, do I really need to get a respirator and all that stuff? Some of these guys look like they're in bio suits, and, and, uh, and um, I, I don't know that it's that big of a deal. I know you've touched on this before. Uh, also, is there any value to the slag? I, I, there's some copper in it, but it, it it's, I'm not sure, uh, if it's something that I should even bother with, um, take into the recycle yard and try to get some money for it. Um, and do I need to worry about testing for hardness, uh, concerns for the weight variances in the bullets and, uh, barrel letting, those kinds of things. And, uh, if you could touch on lubrication and this new thing, everybody's talking about powder coating now. They say it's, it's a game changer. Uh, I, I don't know. I haven't gotten to that point yet. So uh, I'm doing pistol rounds mostly right now. Um, I do have some buckshot that I've I've cast, and uh, I, I haven't started on on rifle rounds, but maybe someday I I, I might do that. So uh, like to hear your thoughts. Thanks. 
Okay, so let's start out with the safety concerns. I don't cast a lot of bullets, uh, but I've, I've done it, and I'm not real worried about it. Now, this is what I do when I'm going to cast bullets. I set up a table outside in the open air. I pick a nice day with maybe a, a soft breeze, but not a really windy day because that can be, you know, a pain in the ass. And, you know, I, and I, I cast outside. And I don't stick my face directly over the, uh, the, uh, the, the pot or whatever. And it, it just, it, it, I mean, I, I think that people are hypersensitive to things like this today. And, you know, it's, it's something that's been done since the dawn of, of gunpowder, honestly. And uh, we don't have people, you know, sick with lead poisoning because they cast bullets. We just don't. So I, I'm not, you know, wearing a respirator, a hazmat suit, or whatever uh, to melt down some some lead and, and and pour it into a mold. I'm just not going to. I'm not going to get into the specifics of how to cast bullets. If you're doing it already, you basically know. I'll try to touch on a few of the things that you brought up. Powder coating. I know nothing about this, but I did look up some videos of people doing it. It looks like a freaking pain in the ass. It looks like enough of a pain in the ass that you just might as well buy jacketed bullets and go on with life. So it's not something I, I'm going to do. Lubing. Um, I, I, I checked around to see if I could find a video of, a, of anybody doing it the way I do it, and I found video. It's exactly the way I do it. I think basically a plastic, uh, like Tupperware-style container. I put my bullets in there. I squirt some lube on them, and I, I mix it around uh, until they're all coated, and then I put them out and let them dry. And there's no reason for me to try to dig through my stuff and, and find some unlubed bullets just to do that for you. I just link to this dude's video. And, and I think it's definitely worth, you know, lubing your bullets. Um, I'm not big on gas checks uh, because I load within the tolerance of the lead that I'm, I'm pushing down the barrel. Uh, but you, you can certainly do gas checks. And there are times when I do want a gas check. And generally, I just buy cast lead when I want a gas check, running really hot loads or something like that. On hardness, so here's what I'm going to recommend. I'm going to, and I'll put a link in the show notes for this. I'm going to recommend that you pick up a copy of the, of the reloading book called um, Modern Reloading by Richard Lee of Lee Reloading Company. Um, it probably is the best explanation of everything you're asking about that exists that I know of, including hardness. He basically gives you exactly how to determine different hardnesses of lead by hitting it with a ball-peen hammer. He tells you how to calculate uh, exactly what you can do with loads uh, based on the hardness of your lead to not have uh, blow-by and not, not need a gas check. It, it, it's, it's really, really, really cool. Um, if you And what you're doing, you said you're slag, so I'm not exactly sure what you mean. What I'm guessing is... The, the stuff, you know, you're not just going to the, 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 the 22 range, you know, and getting all pretty much pure lead with just some waste slag. You're getting jacketed bullets. You're getting whatever's there. Uh, so you're melting the lead off of copper jackets. And then so what you have is you have your waste product, and it's probably all gnarly up with your copper. Um, if it was clean copper, you know, copper's pretty good scrap. Um, a dirty copper and lead product like that, they're probably going to pay you whatever lead sells for, which ain't much. So I don't know that it's really worth anything. It might be just better served discarded. The reason you might take it to you know the scrapyard or whatever is because at least something environmentally intelligent will be done with it. It probably will be refined. So if you throw it in the garbage, basically you're throwing you know foul lead, nasty stuff into a landfill. 
So I would, I would take it to, you know, wherever you can, you know, scrap or whatever, regardless of what they pay for it. Just to be responsible is what I would do. And I'll, I'll throw in a little trick here for people because you asked about hardness. I learned this a long time ago. I think it was in an, episode, uh, an edition of Backwoodsman Magazine, and I've tried it, and it works phenomenal. It is how to make expanding um, solid-based lead bullets that will actually perform kind of like a nozzler partition uh, bullet. All right. What we want to do is we want to melt two different things of lead, and we want one of them to be pure lead. Pure lead, soft as you can get. You want the other one to be hard. Like just using wheel weights for that piece would get you really, really hard bullets. Um, but we can, you know, add a little, uh, a little tin, a little block tin to it to make it even harder. And what we're going to do is we're going to make a dipper, and usually you make them out of like a shell casing, and we're going to figure out how much that dipper needs to be, how big that dipper needs to be to be able to drop lead into our um, mold. And when we do that, we want it to fill about one half of the mold, not by volume, but by length. So if the if the bullet was a big, long bullet, it was an inch long, you want to fill a half. And we're going to take a dipper, and we're going to fill our mold with the soft lead. And then we're immediately going to follow it with the hard lead. And they will fuse together beautifully. They will just be dynamite and be vulcanized together like crazy. You can't vulcanize lead, but think of it like vulcanizing rubber. And it will hold beautifully. And when that round hits a deer, let's say, that soft front frontal portion of the lead will begin to mushroom violently, and that, that solid hard cast base will drive it through. You don't really need to do that, but it's kind of cool that you can And, and, and that starts to kind of, you know, wide cast bullets because there's all these different cool little things that you can do. Um, my personal opinion is that most of the time you're either just, you don't really care that it's that hard other than for like what, what's the load and how, how little handle pressure and stuff like that. A, a little bit uh, of, of block tin is a great idea in, in any time you're casting. Uh, unless you're doing what I just said. Uh, it just, you just get better results that way. Um, but when it comes to, like, if I was hand ca casting uh, bullets for, let's say, 357 Magnum, um, then I want to go with a really hard lead, and I'm not really worried about mushroom. I want penetration. That, that's what you're looking for out of, you know, big lead slugs is, is penetration. So, anyway, I, I'm glad to hear that you're, you're taking up this hobby and you're learning about it. Um, if, if I'm incorrect about what you mean by slag, you know, if you have clean copper, let me know. And, or I'll just tell you my opinion would be definitely, uh, it's probably, you know, got some value to it. But I think it's going to be, they're, they're, they're going to pay you probably the price for lead for it, even though it's mostly copper, because it has to be processed to get to the copper before the copper can be processed to become new copper. But do it for the environmental reasons. All right. So with that, we've uh, we've wrapped up another episode of the show. If you enjoy the show and you want to support us, one way that you can do that is by uh, doing your Amazon shopping through tspaz.com. If you go to tspaz.com, whenever you're going to shop on Amazon, and uh, you, you, you just click the link there and you end up on Amazon and buy your stuff, we get credit for the sale. And, and that's like an easy, painless, no-cost way because it's stuff you're going to buy anyway. 
Or you might be buying something because we've recommended it, and uh, we do recommend an item every day. We do a review. Today's one, I, I don't think everybody's going to run out and buy one of these. I think it would be maybe one or two out of the whole audience because it's kind of a specialized thing. Uh, but it is, it is a new reel that uh, I picked up this fall that we'll be using for fishing for really big catfish and for like fishing for sharks from shore down at the coast. It's made by a company called Akuma. It's the Akuma Avenger ABF 65 bait feeder reel. Um, but there are a lot of different sizes of this reel. This is the second largest of, of them that they make. And the reason I have that particular one is a, a guy named Jeff was here at one of the last workshops and I bartered for it on the barter blanket. And then I went out and bought a really nice, uh, uh, ugly stick, uh, big water, uh, 1100, nine foot, uh, rod to pair with it. It's a beautiful setup. And what, what made me want to barter for it was when he showed me what's called the bait feeder function on it. So this is the bait feeder reel. And what that does, if you've ever watched people, like if you watch that show where the guy fishes for river monsters, you'll see a lot of times you have a big old bait cast reel, and it'll be sitting there, and it'll make it all dramatic, and all of a sudden you hear the, the, the line going tick, 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 and it, the line's feeding off the spool, but it's not free spooling, right? There's some tension there, just enough that it doesn't get all, you know, backlashed or whatever. And, and a lot of good bait cast reels have that kind of a functionality. This is the only spin reel that I know of. There might be 20 of them. I don't know. But this is the only one I know of that has that feature. Basically, it's two separate drags settings, right? So on the back, there's a lever. You pop that lever up, and then there's a drag setting on the back of the reel. And you can set that to a very, very light drag where when a fish takes it, you same thing. You hear the line kind of going out on the spool, but the fish feels very little resistance, so it's it's running. Well, all you do then is grab your rod and flip it over, and that clicks on, and that that heavier drag that you have set for fighting the fish is there, and bam, you you're you know fight on. And this reel is freaking awesome. It runs as smooth as silk, and it's sixty bucks for this you know, kind of big water style reel. And it's got that additional feature. It's got no back travel. And back travel is when you're cranking a reel and you stop and you move the reel, you move the handle back the way you came. A lot of reels will come back a quarter inch or more. There's that back travel. You don't really want that in a well-made reel. When you stop, it should be just dead solid. It shouldn't go back at all unless you flip the setting that allows it to reel in reverse. And uh, th this is a fantastic reel. So much so that I'm really thinking about getting the, the ABF 30 and kind of putting it head to head with, with my Mitchell 300, which is my, my favorite, you know, reel for my general everyday fishing. You're, you're, you got a medium light action, uh, style stuff. Uh, cause I'm so impressed with this bigger one that I, I got again because of a barter. So, uh, check it out. And, uh, if you, if you live where you fish for big fish, uh, I think this particular reel, but if you like the kind of the idea of the bait feeder, cause even fishing for smaller catfish and all, The idea of being able to do that, especially when you're a bank fisherman, you know, and you set up four or five rods uh, in like, you know, in, in, in like Y sticks or something like that, and you're just kind of sitting back and having a beer and, and watching the sunset and whatever, being able to have that setting where you just see that line going and you just pick it up and bam, that's fantastic. I'll give you a trick, a, 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 a kind of a, a coal region boy trick. There's two of them. What I used to do before I knew about this technology in that situation is I'd open the bale, and then I would pull the line to the side and put a rock on the line. And that way when the fish took it, it would come out from under the rock and start running. And then the other thing that I used to do is put a rubber band on the rod just in front of the reel. 
And so then you, you kind of tuck the line under the rubber band so the fish can pull it out, and then it starts pulling off the reel. Those work. The problem is if something knocks that off and the wind's blowing or something, you can end up with you know a, basically a bird's nest, and it's a pain in the ass. With this, that's not going to happen. So, so check it out. Even if you're not in the market for a reel of this size, just check out the line. And, and I'm actually, uh, if anybody's used this reel in the smaller sizes, if you have any opinions on that, I'd, I'd love to hear from you in the comments section on that review. So that's at tspaz.com today. Or you can just click on over to Amazon and do your Amazon shopping for whatever you're going to purchase from Amazon this week. If you do it through tspaz, it helps us. And I thank you for Uh, thinking of us when you do your Amazon shopping. It, it really helps a lot. All right, so that brings us to the song of the day. So, so yesterday, I came up with this brilliant idea, through the war years at least, and, and I haven't heard from anybody, if you want me to do it all the way up to, to the, the end of the you know history segment when we get to the modern day, um, play the number one Billboard chart song of that year. Uh, kind of nice hand in hand with the, with the, you know, the, the history segments with Alex. And so I found this song yesterday. It's kind of like you would expect from 1938, kind of a jazzy thing, you know, kind of make you think of like Perry Como or something, if you remember him when you were a kid and your grandparents watched it. And I pull up, well, what's the number one song for 1939? And it's Strange Fruit by Billy Holloway. This is a hard song to listen to. It is a horrific description of a lynching. In the South is what it is. The strange fruit is a black man hanging from the tree. And the way she sings it, oh, it's, it's, it's a horrifying look at a, a part of America's past that we don't want to look at. But I, I would actually say that the fact this song was number one in 1939 proves that not everybody was okay with it. And we have a tendency to look back in the past and, and lump all of our forefathers together, and I think that's wrong. But when I did a little research on this song, I, I found an incredible story about the person that actually wrote it. Um, and I'm going to give you the abbreviated story. You could read the whole article uh, that it's, it's actually on NPR um, if you want to click through the link today. But the article is called The Strange Story of the Man Behind Strange Fruit. This is a, a guy that was a... New York City um, school teacher, and he was also Jewish, and he saw a picture of a lynching, and he was horrified by it. His name was Abel Mirapol, and he wrote this song, and eventually it ended up with Billie, Holly, uh, Billie Holiday singing it. And he was, as many school teachers were at, at this time in the 20s and 30s, a communist communist. And remember I said something about extremes. There were a lot of people that gravitated toward communism because one, they didn't really understand what they were doing, as most people gravitate toward communism would do. But it was communists that were actually speaking up for some level of equality at the time. No one else was. So a lot of people gravitated toward that side of society because They were the only ones that they could see that were really speaking up publicly against things like this. Many people that were opposed to it just turned away and didn't look. And many people that did see it were part of why it was happening. But this man, later in life, 
ended up adopting two children. And those children were children of American communists as well, which might not seem so strange at first until I tell you the name of the family that they belonged to. They were the children of the Rosenbergs. As in the Rosenbergs, who we executed for leaking secrets to the, the Russians about our nuclear uh, program so that the Russians could get you know their own nuclear bomb. And it's debatable whether they were really guilty as, as charged or not, but we executed them. They had two children, and uh, they were two boys. And I'm trying to remember now, their names were Robert and Michael, and they were six and ten, six and ten years old. And this is the height of McCarthyism now later in, in life, right? This is the Red Scare and all of that. And, and even members of their own family were afraid to take them in because they were connected to these, these hated communists who sold out our nuclear secrets to the Russians, and they didn't want to be targeted next. Well, this man, Robert Mirapool, he goes out and he adopts Robert and Michael. And takes care of them for the rest of his life and grows them into uh, decent young men. And a lot of these people that were communists back then are you know, changed as they saw what communism was. Um, and I, I believe that he did as well. And he was also a pretty interesting guy with his the way he was. I, I want to read to you the last couple um, paragraphs of this story. Uh, that I think a lot of people in this audience would, would find kind of moving because this audience is made up of people that are big on doing things like planting trees and, and taking care of the earth. Um, I'll start here. Robert Mirapool says that in the months following his parents' execution, it was unclear who would take care of him and his brother. It was the height of McCarthyism. Even family members were fearful of being in any way associated with the Rosenbergs or communism. Then at a Christmas party at the home of uh, Webb Du Bois, the boys were introduced to Abel and Anne Mirapool. A few weeks later, uh, they were living with them. One of the most remarkable things about how quick was, was how quickly we adapted, uh, Robert says. And it's Abel, it's Abe Mirapool. I, I said it was Robert. That's the son. Abe Mirapool was the guy that wrote the, the article. This is the man I'm talking about. Um, what I remember about him as a six-year-old was he was a real jokester. He liked to tell a lot of silly stories and play word games. And he would put these, put on these comedy shows that would leave me rolling. There was something else about Abel Mirapool that was, that seems to connect the man who wrote Strange Fruit to the man who created a loving family out of a national scandal. He was incredibly soft-hearted, Robert says. For example, there was an old Japanese maple tree in their backyard, which set out many new seedlings every year. I was the official lawnmower, Robert says, and I was going to mow them over. He said, oh no, you can't kill the seedlings. I said, what are you going to do with them, Dad? There are dozens of them. Well, he dug them up and put them in coffee cans and lined them up along the side of the house. And there were hundreds of them, but he just couldn't bring himself to kill them. It was just something he couldn't do. Abel Muirpool died in 1986. His sons, Robert and Michael, both became college professors. They also are both involved on social issues. Robert founded the Rosenberg Fund for Children 
and he says that even after all these years, he still finds himself unable to kill things in his own garden. That's a story that I bet very few people know. I didn't know it. And it's kind of uplifting, and I think you're going to kind of need uplifting as you hear this song. It's, it is really a very dark look at a very dark part of what America used to be. And I personally think we should realize and be willing to look at that, that history. But I also think that we should realize what it actually says about how we live today. This country is, by and large, when it comes to, based on your race, very much an equal country. Very, very much so. And there's racists in, in positions of power here and all over the world. But when it comes down to it, you can do anything you want in America, no matter who you are, if you actually make the effort and don't make excuses. That didn't used to be the case, and this is about a time that was like that. Bitter cry. 